You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Let's pray together. So, Father in heaven, here as we gather as a church uh, across the city, in our homes, with our families and households and friends, in such seemingly uncertain times, uh, Father, would you have a word for us here in Psalm 14? Thank you that we have the book. We have a word from heaven in our confusing, disorienting, uncertain days. Would you strengthen us in our souls, in Christ, by your spirit, through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, David is on the run from King Saul, who wants to kill him. The prophet Samuel has just died, and Samuel is the one who anointed David to be king, and Saul wants to wipe David out, but the writing is on the wall. Even Saul has just confessed it at the end of chapter 24, but for now, the king awaits for his future time, and he's got 600 men gathered to him in the wilderness, but he waits. And there in the wilderness, David comes across a rich man who has thousands of sheep and goats. And we're told the man's name is Nabal. And the irony here is that the word Nabal in Hebrew means fool. Nabal is harsh and badly behaved, but his wife named Abigail, the story tells us, is discerning and beautiful. David's men have been doing Nabal a favor by protecting Nabal's shepherds and his flocks And so David has reason to think that Nabal would be a friend and that Nabal and all his wealth might help David and his 600 men in the wilderness who need food. And so David sends 10 of his young men to Nabal to ask very politely if they may have some food. But Nabal answers like a fool. Nabal says, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Which shows this is not ignorance. This is insult. Nabal knows exactly who David is. Everyone in Israel knows who David is, who killed Goliath and whom Samuel anointed as the rightful king. But Nabal is a fool. He treats the rightful king just like he would treat some rascal in the wilderness. So not only does Nabal turn David's men away, but he insults David. On top of it. Verse 14 says, he railed at them. Nabal says, in essence, in his heart, there is no rightful king, meaning, David, you're a nobody. Nabal acts as though there will be no reckoning for his bad behavior. Not only has he declined to help, but he has added insult to his miserliness. And when word comes to David and his mighty men, David says, every man, strap on your sword. And he begins marching, 400 men strong, toward Nabal's estate. And one of Nabal's servants, who had overheard the interchange and knew they were going to be goners, he goes ahead and tells Nabal's wife, Abigail, what happened. And Abigail sees the writing on the wall. She hurries to prepare provisions for David and his men, and she rides out to meet them, confessing her husband's folly. 
She says, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Abigail confesses that things are not what they seem. Despite the present appearances, she knows that David has God's anointing, and he will be king. And she pleads that David not bring guilt on himself by avenging himself against such a fool as Nabal. And at Abigail's wise words, David comes to his senses. He praises Abigail and her discretion, and he sends her home in peace. And the next day, when Abigail tells her husband what happened, he immediately realizes the error of his ways. David may not yet be king. He may seem like a poor, lowly scoundrel in the wilderness, but this is God's anointed. Indeed, things are not what they seem. Nabal has been a fool, and now hearing the wise words from his discerning wife, it lands on him with great terror. Verses 37 and 38 of 1 Samuel 25. Nabal's heart died within him, and he became a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So why start with Psalm, why start Psalm 14 with 1 Samuel 25? Well, the reason that we start with this tragedy about Nabal and the wisdom of Abigail is because Psalm 14 begins with the fool, Hebrew, Nabal. Verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It doesn't mean that David wrote this psalm about Nabal in particular, but that Nabal's story, along with other psalms, show us the kind of fool that David has in mind as he writes Psalm 14 and the very different kind of people that God means for his people, Israel, and for the church to be. There are three distinct voices in Psalm 14, and let's listen to them this morning here in turn. So number one, there's the voice of the fool in his heart. This is verse one, the voice of the fool in his heart. And note here that it says, in his heart, he says there is no God. It doesn't say in his mouth. This is not professed atheism. This is probably professed theism with a voice of atheism in the heart. This is not mainly intellectual, but moral. Not someone telling the world there is no God, but the fool, like Nabal, who presumes he can act without accountability. God will not hold him responsible for his actions. That's what we saw in Psalm 10 last summer as we're going through Psalms 1 to 12. Psalm 10 verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. It's not professed, it's his thoughts. Verse 13 of Psalm 10, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, will you not call to account? God does not immediately right every wrong. And fools observe this, and they assume that God will not right their wrongs, that God will not hold them accountable for their actions. 
God may be there, he may see things, but he won't do anything about it. At least that's what it seems like. But the Psalms teach us over and over again, as the whole Bible does, that things are not yet what they seem. God sees, he knows, he is patient, yet he will bring everything to account. The wise live in this light and fools do not. But he won't do anything about it, the fool thinks. But that's not true. And God will show them again and again. And in the lie in his heart, the fool, and have we not all told ourselves this lie before? It affects the fool himself, he's corrupt. It affects God and how the fool does this, and it affects the lives of others. Verse one says the fool is corrupt. It affects his own heart as he tells himself this lie. But not only is the fool himself corrupt, but verse one, they do abominable deeds. That's God's perspective on it. Abominable means morally repulsive. Not just frowned upon by God. He didn't look the other way. He hates such deeds. He actively opposes such deeds. They incite omnipotent wrath from God. And such folly affects other people as well. There is none who does good, verse 1 says. Good means doing good for others, helping others out. Other people are going without good because the fool says in his heart, there is no God and has inward corruption and thinks that God, God won't hold him accountable. But it doesn't just stay here with the good that is denied to others. The fool then inevitably takes it to the next level. So first comes the voice of the fool in his heart. That's number one. Number two then, the voice of God looking down from heaven. This is, the, this is most of the psalm. This is verses two to six. This is the heart. This is the voice of God looking down from heaven. God looks. He sees, he knows, he knows the full lies in his heart. And he sees the life of private corruption and of public privation to others. He finds it abominable and he looks to see, God looks out. Are there any who act wisely? Are there any who seek after me? And verse three then answers with strikingly universalizing language. None is the answer. Look at verse three. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. They do it together. There is none who does good, not even one. Those final three words, not even one, sum up the whole point of verses one to three. And the contrast here between the children of man, as the Psalm calls the wicked, and God's people, and God calls them my people in verse four, it's a stark contrast. And in verse four, it then goes to the next level. Not only are the wicked corrupt, but they also then mistreat God's people. They don't only withhold good from their neighbor, but they attack God's people in various ways. God says in verse four, they eat up my people as they eat bread. So there is inevitable parting of the ways between the people of God and the children of man. No matter how much the children of man may seem benign 
or tolerant of God's people for a season, it's just a matter of time until those who reject God eventually reject his people as well. One reason is that God's people, as they live faithfully in the world, remind the children of man that something is not right in their souls. Deep down, unbelievers know they have turned from God and are running from him, and that they are in great terror, that despite what they've told themselves, God will hold them accountable. Paul writes to the Philippians to encourage them in such hard times, opposed by the world, and tells them to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Then he says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. That's Philippians 1, 27 and 28. In other words, as the church stands side by side with each other and holds firm to the gospel and is not frightened by threats from opponents who are trying to eat up God's people like they eat up bread, we signal to the world in those moments that they are the ones on the wrong side of history. Not us, not the church. A joyful, unfrightened, unified church in the face of threat and opposition shows God's enemies that they are on a path of destruction and that his church is on the path of salvation. So then a great terror, verse four says, falls on such people, not on God's people. And so this is verse five, look at verse five. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. So just as great terror fell upon Nabal as he realized the error of his ways in the wise words of his wife, so it happens to the wicked as they see the error of their ways in the conduct of the righteous. This is verse 37 of 1 Samuel 25. His wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as stone. It's what happens to the fool as they realize their errors. Or like Haman, if you know the story of Esther, when Queen Esther reveals to the king how Haman has been plotting against her people, Esther 7, 6 says he was terrified. Or like it was for Satan on Easter Sunday, when Jesus' cold, dead heart warmed and began to beat. Can you imagine the sound of the beat of Jesus' resurrected heart in the ears of Satan on Easter Sunday? So this great terror that falls on God's enemies through seeing the triumph of God's people in Psalm 14 anticipates the cross. This anticipates the very moment when the greatest evil and the greatest oppression of the righteous in all history brought about the very defeat of the evil that came after Jesus. Friday and Saturday, Satan thought he had triumphed. Then came Sunday morning. Yesterday, Nabal thought he was railing at a lowly scoundrel. Today, he realizes he was dealing with God's anointed. But so far, we've only focused on the fools, only focused on the wicked so far in Psalm 14, those who are opposed to God's people. That's how the psalm begins, and that's how it progresses. However, 
by way of contrast with the fool, there is a portrait here of God's people, which is really important for us in these days. Who are we as God's people in such unprecedented, you've heard that word in the last few weeks, uncertain, disorienting times? There are three ways here in verses two to six of three parts of the portrait of God's people, which are so important for us, especially in these days. So here under, under number two, under, under God's perspective, look at three quick aspects of the portrait of God's people. The first is we seek after him. Verse two, the Lord looks down from heaven to see if there are any who seek after him. God's people seek after him. We not only have been sought by him, but we then seek after him. And so I ask, in this season, in these days, are you seeking after him? What does it look like in this new reality of stay-at-home Minnesota, of shelter-in-place? What does it mean to seek after him in such unusual days? And how sweet would it be when this season ends that we would look back and say, we renewed our seeking after God in this season. Our pursuit of God intensified in this season. It was sweeter in this season. We sought him, we found him, he met us, and we drew nearer to him, not further away during coronavirus outbreak 2020, which we will remember the rest of our lives. How do we seek him in these days? In his word, for sure. In what we hear, whether that's the Bible read through an app or through audio podcasts or sermons, what we read. There's quality content to be read online and in books, in conversation with family, with spouse, with roommates, with friends, over Zoom, on the phone, in worship, together as a family, in the living room, in prayer, which leads us to the second one. So not only do we seek after him, but we call on him by name. This is verse four. All the evildoers do not call upon the Lord. To call upon the Lord, that's capital L-O-R-D, Lord. That's his name, Yahweh, his covenant name. To call on him as Lord is not to call on an unknown God. It is to call on the God of the covenant, the God who has revealed himself to us, the God who has first taken the initiative and spoken to us and made sure promises to us. To call on him is to call on him to fulfill the terms he promised and initiated in his covenant to us. And so we pray. We pray in light of what, what God has said to us in his word. We ask, we call upon him by name, the name he's revealed to us, which in Psalm 14 is Yahweh. And for us today as Christians is Jesus. We call upon the name of the Lord in the name of Jesus, which then leads to a third part of the portrait of God's people here in Psalm 14. We shelter in him. We hardly used this word shelter three weeks ago. <laughs> and now it's everywhere. Verse six, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. When God's enemies eat up God's people, insulting them, maligning them, mistreating them, even attacking them. Where do God's people go? Where do we shelter? That's what a refuge is. A refuge is a shelter. It's a place of safety, a haven. It's a shelter from threat. God is our refuge. 
He's our safe place, our shelter, our haven. But God is not only the shelter of the threat that's out there in the world to our health and our good, he is also the shelter of the threat that is within us. There is a threat in our own hearts. There is a threat in the external shelter that came in through us. And there may be a, there's a tension here in the psalm, and you may have felt this already, this tension. In verse 3, with all that universalizing language that was so striking, none, all, not any, none, no one, is this referring just to God's enemies? Are not God's own people included in the none, not any, all, none, not even one? The psalm seems to go out of the way to say this is inclusive of all. And the Apostle Paul felt this tension, and he thought that Psalm 14 does condemn all of us. And so he quoted verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 14 in Romans chapter 3, where he is making the case that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. We all are born into this depravity in the first half of the psalm. We all live apart from Christ in this depravity. We all are born into the beginning of Psalm 14. The question is, will we be reborn into the end of Psalm 14? Will the end of Psalm 14 be true of us just as much as verses one to three and four, five, and six are true of us in unbelief? And how does that happen? The only way out for God's people is to seek him, to call upon him by name in Jesus, and to take shelter in him. Psalm 14 doesn't give us the details. We don't know how our seeking after God and our calling on his covenant name and our sheltering in him covers us from the guilt of our sin. There is a trust in Psalm 14, that God will care for his people, even though we're not sure how. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we now know how God takes care of our guilt. The gospel answers the tension in Psalm 14 between all of us being sinful and God's people now being safe in Christ. So a final thing here. First, we heard about the, the voice of the fool in his heart. Then the voice of God from heaven, looking down, and now number three, and finally, the voice of God's people rejoicing in praise. This is verse seven. A psalm has moved from the heart of the fool to the eyes of the Lord and finishes with the mouth of praise. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. So God's people now open their mouth in praise and they're still in the midst of their distress and trouble. It's not over yet, but they look to him first as their salvation. Oh, that salvation would come from Zion. That's the name of God's holy hill where the temple is. That's a way of saying, oh, that salvation would come from God. We're looking to God for our rescue. We're not looking elsewhere for safety. We're not looking to other nations. We're not looking to our own strength. We're not looking to epidemiologists and statisticians. We're not looking to politicians and economists. God's people are looking first and foremost to him. 
Our shelter is in our God. So for us, in our present distress, are we looking first and foremost to our God? Not our doctors, not ventilators and masks, not our hygiene, not our distancing, not our immune systems. Are we looking primarily and most deeply to God as our refuge? God is our shelter. God, not anything else, as our ultimate hope and trust. And then this psalm ends with two last little pieces of the portrait of God's people. My favorite part. <laughs> two little final pieces of the portrait. The first is that God's people look to a certain future. Certain, meaning sure, not particular, meaning sure, a certain future. Verse seven, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Not if, when. The psalm doesn't end with a condition, it ends with confidence. It is just a matter of time. God's people, the underdog, will win. God will see to it. He loves underdog stories. He wrote the original one. He wrote the story of David as an underdog and Jesus as an underdog and Israel as an underdog and the church as an underdog. The church doesn't start on top. The church doesn't stay on top, but the church ends on top. God will see to it that this underdog story will end with his people on top. For God's people, the best is always yet to come, no matter the distress. And so we worship in great hope. And in doing so, we rejoice now. That's the final part of this portrait of God's people. We rejoice even now in an uncertain present. Knowing that our final victory is in Christ, not when, or not if, but when, we are glad now. We don't wait till the end to have our joy and experience it. Because Christ is on the throne now, and because his final victory is certain, even though we live in uncertainty, we believe that things are not what they seem. God is for his people who shelter in Christ, no matter what it looks like, no matter what's spreading in our cities and outside our home. Folly lives in light of appearances. Wisdom lives in light of God's word, what he has promised, knowing that no matter how things look for now, Christ is king and he will right every wrong in this world. So Father in heaven, would you give us such certain hope and would you make us a peculiar people that stand out in such days of fear and uncertainty? Would you make us a people of joy? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.